1: purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Hey, just a quick note before the interview starts. During the interview, the book A Canned Loan Officer, which is being reprinted by the Vickers Machine Gun Collection and Research Association, is mentioned. That book is actually available for pre-order on the day that this episode releases. I had a chance to give the book a read before we did the interview, and I thought it was an interesting first-hand account of a soldier's experiences during the war. You can find a link to the pre-order site in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Second World War interview. Today, I'm joined by Rich Fisher, a director of the Vickers MG Collection and Research Association. Rich, how's it going today? Good, thanks. Nice to meet you, Wesley. (laughs) It's nice to meet you as well. So we're going to start off uh, with kind of an easy question, hopefully, uh, as a director. What is the Vickers MG Collection and Research
0: Association? So we're a, a not-for-profit association here in the UK where basically we just we we study the Vickers MG you know it, uh, but everything connected to it. So the Vickers served for the British army from 1912 to 1968. So a long period of time. It gives us an opportunity to you know study the Great War, the Second World War, Korea, um Mal- British in- intervention in Malaya, loads of stuff around that but also it's served around the world so the v- vickers vickers armstrongs as they became they were you know a the dominant arms company of certainly the 1920s and 30s and they sold the vickers everywhere that would everywhere that would buy them which was most countries so we've got research sort of strains into um, South American countries, the Far East. Uh, they were built by several different countries around the world as well. So the US built Vickers machine guns, not a lot of people know that. Um, Australia did, um, Portugal even. So so we've got loads of different strands that we just study the Vickers um, from. Now, you, you, I'm a director of the association. There are four of us, but the the, the collection side of things is built from a collection that I spent. Um, I think it's about fifteen years. So I. I I've been collecting. I bought my first Vickers machine gun when I was 12 years old. So, yeah, those that know in the U- United Kingdom, that is. Were there any permitting problems with that or anything? Click. No, not at the time. Um, so that was a deactivated Vickers or a DWAP in U.S. terms. Um, we now have firing guns, which is probably something that. Um, most people would think here in the UK we don't have so you know that that's it's not unique but it's quite scarce to have firing and machine guns in the UK um, but you know so I, I had the opportunity when I was 12 to, to buy one um, my grandfather had been a vickers machine gunner in the Second World War so that's what got me into it I spent you know, then fifteen years collecting anything that I could to do with the vickers and for various reasons in 2011, I decided that Um, the collection was quite extensive and I wanted to professionalize what I was doing, um, safeguard that as well. Um, you know, for personal financial reasons, all of that sort of stuff. I wanted to make sure that this collection I'd spent so long putting together didn't get broken up. So I formed this not-for-profit, the Vickers MG Collection and Research Association, which has now been in existence for just over 10 years um, and, you know, does a variety of things. And we'll talk about some of those different projects um, through the course of this, I'm sure. But, you know, we, we, we go from open days, uh, people visiting us here in, in Swindon, which is in Wiltshire in the middle of the UK, to... Um, to, you know, to, to going out and doing some living history work, to producing a YouTube channel, um, lots of archive material online, uh, manuals relating to the Vickers, lots of other material that we do as well, um, writing academic papers, publishing books, lots and lots of stuff. But at the heart of it is the Vickers machine gun, because it interests me, really. Um, it <laughs> comes down to what particularly pulls my strings, and that is the Vickers machine gun.
1: That's where all good sort of history projects start. Is I don't know what do you what do you want to learn about?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: I think I am contractually obligated to start off this interview after that introduction with a question about the Vickers. <laughs> so one of the things I find really fascinating about the, the Vickers, just just kind of in general, is how so much of the history of the First World War and into the Second World War and the years in between and then the years immediately after it's kind of gets wrapped around like conversations of technology and how technology shifted during these conflicts and how that ended up kind of changing the nature of warfare. But then you have pieces of military hardware, like the Vickers. There are some other examples as well that are there for this whole whole time period, right? You know, the the Vickers is there in in 1912, I believe you mentioned before the first world war. Uh, And then it's, you know, there are jets flying over Vickers uh, by the time it is retired. So, so what kind of allowed the, the Vickers MG to kind of exist in all these different time periods?
0: Yeah. Like I said, it's 1912 to 1968 with the British alone. Yeah. But then the South Africans continue to use that until the 1980s. So, you know, it just, it's one of those bits of kit, a bit like the, you know, Browning point five or the Browning 50, you know, it's still there in service today. It's a 1921 design at the heart of it. Some of these things, just get the best they can be and can't get improved um, you know I'm, I'm sure we'll hit that at some point with other technology as well you know but it, it, it's one of those bits of equipment that really doesn't get matched even in the 1960s it goes out of service because we change what we need it's not because the gun is becomes obsolete from a technology perspective, because there's nothing that replaces it, it's because we don't need water-cooled machine gunnery anymore, because we've got sustained fire from from mortars, from light artillery, from things like that. So it does. It's you. Know, it's because we don't need the same level of automatic firepower. But what makes the Vickers um, you know, longevity be so great is because that actually so many things change around it. So although we think of the gun as remarkably unchanged, and it is, you know, it's, it's the Mark 1 Vickers machine gun that gets introduced in 1912. And it's the Mark 1 Vickers machine gun that gets taken out of service in 1968. There are several other Marks, but they're for like aircraft, which go in and go out of service. You know, they're, they're not needed. There are tank guns as well that aren't needed because tanks get different machine guns and effectively the Browning replaces those. But But for the infantry gun... Um, it's the Mark I that goes in and out of service. And it's because you c- because it's an entirely flexible thing. You know, once it goes down to that small scale, you can change the organisation. And the organisation changes a lot around the Vickers. At one point, you've got two guns per infantry battalion. Then you've got four. Then you've got them brigaded into machine gun companies as part of the machine gun corps in the First World War. Then you've got them turned into machine gun battalions with 64 Vickers working together. And then at the end of the war they get returned to the infantry battalions and the cavalry regiments. They have them as well. Uh, and then as we hit war again in the, in the 1930s, as we are preparing for war, they go back into a big battalion, you know, full of Vickers machine guns, 48 this time. And then during the, during the second world war, that changes a little bit. And we might talk about that later. And then after the second world war, they go back to the infantry battalions. with just six in a machine gun platoon. So because fundamentally one gun on its own and and you know this is this is perhaps a fundamental flaw in how people see machine gunnery but one gun on its own doesn't doesn't work very well you know because sometimes you know it will get stoppages it will break down so you have pairs of guns working together and then you have four guns working together if it's a big task and as, so, as long as you've got that single building block you can flex the organization to do whatever task you need it to it one of the you can also you know, Technology does change with the Vickers machine gun. So although the gun stays the same, the ammunition it fires doesn't. So we'll think, well, it's just 303-inch ammunition, and that's what the British had in service until the 1950s, when the self-loading rifle replaces it with 7.62 NATO. But actually, in the 1930s, you have a development from the Mark 7 to the Mark 8Z ammunition which might sound really tedious and nerdy, but it changes the range of the Vickers machine gun from 2,900 yards to 4,500 yards. So it suddenly goes, well, wait a minute, we can now reach out to nearly three miles with the Vickers machine gun. It just changes that capability absolutely massively. So it's also key that the Vickers, when it goes into service, is horse-drawn. And and, they're... I'm sat in front of a First World War limbered wagon behind me that carries two Vickers machine guns as far as it can into action. And in front of that is pack saddlery so that you can put it on horses and you can carry it forward like that. But then before the Second World War, we put Vickers machine guns in small tankettes, the universal carrier. Most people will call it the brain gun carrier they're wrong. It wasn't designed for the Bren gun. It was just a universal carrier. Um, it was designed for the Vickers machine gun. Vickers and Carden Lloyd got together and developed this thing. And they put them on those so that they could move uh, you know, independently and in a very, very mechanized manner. Because what you have is this very weighty gun You know, it's um, the tripod is 50 pounds, the gun is 40 pounds. Add seven pints of water, and suddenly it's nearly 50 pounds. Each ammunition box is 22 pounds. It feels good talking to an American because I can mention it in pounds and I don't (laughs) have to convert it in kilograms straight away. Um, But, you know, basically, we've got 25 kilograms, 30 kilograms, and 10 kilograms uh, in in how those loads work. Um, And it means that you can carry more ammunition forward. You don't have to have. Um, all the men that you did. So it, in the in the Great War, a machine gun section or detachment was eight men. You had to have that number. By the time we get to the, the Second World War, we've got that down to just three plus a driver because you can get this ta- tracked vehicle so much further forward than you can when um, when you've got to lug it, when you've got to carry it. A man can't carry more than four ammunition boxes. That's £100. They can't carry that very far. Normally, they can only carry two, £50. So it's, it's really important that the mechanisation, the technology around the gun is what makes the gun stay in service. The gun stays exactly the same. There are some tweaks around manufacturing to make it light, to make it not to make it lighter, actually makes it heavier, but to make it quicker to produce. Um, because it doesn't matter that it's heavier, because you can produce 10 times as many and you can get something to carry them. Uh, so it's often over, you know, we think of this gun as being a great war design um, and in this 1908 to 1912 design that's still in service in the Second World War, and surely it's archaic. But the fact that at the start of the second world war. And as we go forward in an infantry division in the British army and in the um, empire armies as well, in minions and common becomes the commonwealth. It's the most mechanized part of the British army is a machine gun battalion. They are all in carriers. There are very few trucks. So they're all on tracks, which gives you that cross country capability. And, you know, at the time, at the start of the Second World War, the British Army is the most mechanised army in the world um, by percentage. We're not the biggest; we haven't got the most you know, armoured or tracked vehicles, but it's 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 the most mechanised army in the world. So the Vickers is actually the most mechanised element of the most mechanised army in the world. So that's why you can have this heavy water cooled gun that can reach out to four thousand five hundred yards um, with. Uh, we carry um, four thousand seven hundred and fifty rounds with the gun every time, so nineteen boxes of ammunition. Yeah, you know, that's an hour's worth of firing um, at the proper rates, not just pressing the trigger and watching it go. Um, so, so it's it. That's why its longevity lasts. That's why I've got a book on the shelf not far from me that is, you know, it's the catalogue of British Army you know, vehicles and hardware that in it has the Vickers machine gun, but it also has tactical nuclear weapons. And that's because it's in the 1960s. And that's your point about, you know, jets fighting and stuff like that, that just can really sort of blow your mind as how how you think you know, machine gunnery develops over the course of a century, really.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like, and in that answer, like you mentioned so many different things of like, there's like what we might consider like really small changes, like a new type of ammunition that can have massive changes on how you're using a, a like, how you're using the Vickers when it can fire almost twice
0: as far. Yeah, hugely. I mean, you, you asked me a very simple question and I gave a very long answer. <laughs> yes. Um But but it is it it's just tiny stuff that bear in mind though that those tiny changes, you know, we share the small arms committee minutes and everything as part of some of the archival work that we we, we share online. Um we share all of that. And that that tiny change for ammunition took nearly twenty years to develop. Yeah, there was lots of people at ICI and, and Kynock and all these different ammunition um, producers, of which there were th- quite a few. But We come out of the Great War with this huge industry that's set up to make war equipment. Um, you know, what they then do is go, well, we can't make lots of it now because the army isn't having great wars for a while. You know, we have the 10-year rule thing. Um We're not going to, you know, we're going to get fair warning. So what we need to do is specialize. We need to improve. We need to innovate and we need to make things better than our competitors. So that's what they spend all this time doing. And by 1938, we have this ammunition that quite, yeah, like you say, nearly doubles the range of the weapon that it's going in. Um, And it's not, it's worth saying it's not used in the rifle or the light machine guns or anything like that, because what's the point? Cause you can't see what you're firing at. So there's no point putting that ammunition in a rifle or a light automatic or a light machine gun because you can't see what you're firing at at that distance. Okay.
1: I have to ask at this point, and we are zeroing in on this ammunition thing. What did they change to make such an improvement?
0: Look, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at a look at a, a bullet now. Um, you know, and I know this is a podcast, so it's really it's really difficult for people. But this is how I explain stuff, and, and at least Wesley can see it. Mm-hmm. So uh, what you've got this is a 303 bullet that happens to be on my desk. There is no this was not prepared. You know, it happens to be on my desk, and th- the back of this is in a slight taper, a slight chamfer. And it's called boat-tailed ammunition. So all they did was put this in, that Im- improved the aerodynamics of the bullet so much that it didn't spin, it uh, didn't start to spall and tumble in flight. So it meant it could go up higher. So there was less air resistance. It meant it could go further into the air so that then gravity helps it and it doesn't start to spall and just tumble to ground to the ground so much quicker. So... You know, 20 years just working out how much to shave off the back of every every bullet. Um, but, it, you know, for, for anybody that's a, a shooter, you know, the Mark 7 to Mark 8 stuff, you know, will make a difference to how you're, it might not make a difference to your rifle. It might not make a difference to your light machine gun because the bullets aren't going far enough to really worry about it. But if you're firing the Vickers, they make a huge difference.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating. Tiny little changes like that. Uh, But one of the things you also mentioned is kind of uh, on your website online, you have a lot. I really appreciate your website because you have tons of primary sources of various varieties that you've digitized and made sort of public for everybody around all aspects of using the machine gun and the British military and one of the things that really caught my eye due to kind of my history in podcasting, with history of the Great War and the history of the Second World War, is a digitization project that you're doing on your Patreon page around digitizing a, a magazine called 20 Years After. And can, can you describe a little bit about what these magazines are and and where you got them from?
0: Yeah, so um, so it's worth saying that although we're put, we're hosting it on the Patreon page, they are available for everybody to access. Um, we do have a Patreon, and if people want to sign up, great, and they'll get those small arms committee minutes and stuff like that. But the twenty years after magazines are really hosted there because it's free space, um, and it gives us an ability to start to play about with with how we're sharing those. Um, but what it is is it's a sort of then and now magazine that was produced in the nineteen thirties, in the late nineteen thirties, twenty years after the end of the Great War, and they provide articles written by the men that are just twenty years older. So, so actually, in terms of historical analysis um, and the historiography of what's there, they're great. Yeah, uh, you know, they give those first hand accounts in many cases of different areas from around the Great War, so not just the Western Front. But Salonica, Mesopotamia, Gallipoli—all of these different areas. There's a bit of East Africa stuff in there as well, and naval. You know it, there's lots of naval accounts. But they, there's just a three or four articles per issue. They were they were distributed on a weekly basis back in the 1930s, and I um I think. I think there's 120. I might be wrong. It might be 60. I can't remember the size of the stack on my desk. Um, But we're sharing them on a weekly basis. We spotted on Twitter, because Twitter's great uh, for these sorts of things, um, we spotted somebody offering them free to collect. And we couldn't collect. We were a little bit far far away. But I messaged and said, "Look, if if somebody can collect, um, we'll have them, and I'll scan them and put them online, because they look really great. Uh, They're also quite usefully... Um, there's a lot of photographs in there. So for people that want to use photographs that are likely to be out of copyright, uh, they're a great source of material. And that's certainly something that, um, as, I, as I mentioned, we publish material. So finding material that's out of copyright for us to, us to either republish or um, to include in publications is really valuable, uh, particularly when we're working with the constraints of the resources that we have. And so, you know, we, I think we're... Issue twenty four went up yesterday, so this is this is a Wednesday, and went up. They go up every week on a Tuesday, um, so we're well, as near to Tuesday as I can make it. Um, but they'll go up every week uh, until we exhaust them. And you know, Martin, the chap that uh, that uh, sent these down to us, you know. Said you know, free to collector, so it's one of those great sharing stories of social media um, that is, is superb. We're indexing them as well, so uh, there's a link on the website. It's a bit hidden because it's on one of our subpages to to a subpage to something about about the research that we do. But we've started to catalogue the the contents of those as well to try and make them a bit more searchable because that's one there's so much great archive material out there, but we're so used to just typing something into Google, if it isn't doesn't exist in text form on the internet, people aren't going to find it. So yeah, it's really difficult. you know keywords and stuff like that we have to have to match up. But it is one of those many uh, digitization and archive projects that that we've we've spent years doing now uh,
1: f- fantastic. I actually I used your website to look up something in the field service pocketbook. Um, yeah. I believe uh, it was a couple months ago now.
0: And so I was like, oh yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I, I follow this person on Twitter and here's this excellent resource. <laughs> so one of the reasons we did that is because it means that I've always got them to hand. You know, they, they <laughs> will sit there. Um, they sit there on the net and I just, you know, somebody asked me a random question in a field somewhere or in a room and I'm able to, as long as I can remember roughly which manual it's in, um, I can go and find that material. So, and it means that all of those, I think we're up to... I think 600 different manuals now in low resolution. Um, and then we're just working through those and re uploading and re scanning as necessary in high resolution and putting those onto archive.org. So, this is another one of those safeguarding things. So, if our website goes down, they're not all hosted in the one place. They are there where somebody's got better backup than we have. Um, yeah. And they're there and safeguarded. So, they will always be accessible and that's really important you know to make sure that we let's say we're up to about 250 300 of those manuals on there now we are gathering material all the time there's always something new to acquire as well which is which is frustrating and enjoyable at the same same time um, but we we roughly scan in oh gosh probably a gigabytes worth of material um, a month uh, you know, each one of those 20 years afters is 150 meg. So, yeah, a gigabyte, maybe two gig a month and sharing that online. Now, there's, you know, there's constraints in doing that, but hopefully, you know, it makes sure that this primary source material is is not only shared, but safeguarded. All of those original source materials now sit in archive storage boxes and don't need somebody to go through to find that stuff they don't need me when i'm fixing a vickers to pick up the armorer's manual um with my hands covered in grease and stuff like that to to look something up um you know they just need me to you know get get my phone out get my tablet out and look it up there um and wipe the tablet off afterwards hopefully
1: yeah and i would just say personally thank you for, for doing all that work as a person who welcome. makes history content on the internet and does not have access to the archives and things that I need. Digitization efforts and people who make stuff available for free online are just pivotal to, to me doing what I do. I'm Jane Polez So let's, uh, let's move forward to talk about uh, some a new project that, that you're working on, the the, the Can Loan Officer yeah. um, project. So, so what is this book, uh, sort of how did it come into your possession and kind of what are you doing with it?
0: So A Can Loan Officer was a book written originally in the 1980s uh, by a chap called Rex Fendick. Now Rex was a lieutenant in the Middlesex Regiment in the Second World War. He is a Canadian, the, that's the can bit. Uh, on loan that's the loan bit, to uh, to the british army basically as we were getting into um 1944 uh, we knew we were going to be invading northwest europe uh, our officer corps was deplenished, really um it had you know it it was many of the officers had been promoted above subaltern rank so you know lieutenant or second lieutenant And they that's what we needed. So we basically the Canadians, the Canadian army had lots of men at this level. uh, And there was an agreement between the British army and the Canadians that they would loan subalterns to our infantry. You know, some some artillery guys in there as well and some Army Ordnance Corps chaps, specialists but mainly infantry officers that had undergone all of their training in Canada. So it was really low training burden for the British army. Um, They just went, do you want some ready-trained, ready-baked officers, young officers? Um, And Rex was one of those that had been in the St. John's Fusiliers, which was a Canadian machine gun regiment set up along the same lines as the British, as i talked about going into the Second World War with these machine gun battalions. So the Middlesex Regiment was one of those regiments that provided machine gun battalions, and Rex went to the second battalion. Um, it, it's about his journey as a reinforce. So his journey from Canada, really, but it hits Normandy uh, shortly after the landings. So the second battalion, Middlesex, were the machine gun battalion to the third British Division, Infantry Division, um, and they landed on D-Day on the sixth of June. They they. They were one of the assault divisions, the Third Dev. So, and a number of their subalterns were killed. So Rex goes in to as a reinforcement in, into the into the second Middlesex, um, having undertaken a machine gun course in Canada, knowing all this stuff. So he go like say goes in as this ready ready baked officer. Uh, he stayed in the he, he went back to Canada in 1946 and stayed in the Canadian Army until retirement as a lieutenant colonel. He served in Vietnam. Actually, um, you know, he 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 stayed into to that to sort of that period. So he, he saw a lot of conflict, um, and he saw a lot of service. He started to put, but, but sorry, but the can loan element is one of, is the defining piece of his service that he, you know, I, he he sort of spoke to me about um, back in the nineties. He was one of the first people, pers- you know, one of the first individuals that I spoke to about the Vickers machine gun um, outside of my grandfather, you know, as, as I mentioned, you know, he was the Vickers machine gunner in the Cheshire Regiment, which was the same as the Middlesex. They provided machine gun battalions, but my grandfather served in Italy. So Rex was one of the first people that I ever spoke to that had served in Northwest Europe. And when I say spoke to, I mean quite literally. He lived in Canada. Um, I live here in, in in England. And we spoke on the phone quite regularly, every every month or so. Um, and he would tell me tales of the machine gun and stuff like that. And over time, he um he was he said that you know he he'd written this manuscript and he was putting it together as a book. Uh he was convinced to do so by two key people. The first was his son, Reg, um, who I'll probably talk about more in a minute because Reg has been absolutely essential in this publishing project Uh, and the other was Dolph Goldsmith and Dolph is an American Um, many of you uh, many sort of firearms uh, guys in the U.S. will know Dolph because he's written a number of books on the Maxim um, uh, called The Devil's Paintbrush um, a series of books on the Browning machine guns uh, from his own service in, in the U.S. Army and he wrote a book back in the 90s called The Grand Old Lady of No Man's Land which was about the Vickers machine gun, it was one of the first books that I got, it was a Christmas present from my parents, they must regret it now, um, surely <laughs> uh, but they've been you know, the, the, they've been great supporters in unloading and helping to ship out the second edition of that book, uh, which we, which was published last year um, and I was really pleased, like 25 years on from first contacting Dolph to be a co-author uh, corresponding author on that book, on the second edition, but Dolph was instrumental in getting Rex to publish his memoirs properly because it is a fundamental account of a machine gun officer in Northwest Europe. He has written an extensive appendix, uh, which was which was one of the things he first sent to me. So imagine my sort of glee as a probably 16-year-old at that point getting asked my view on you know his appendix on the Vickers machine gun, um, and how it worked, because it explains everything really well, much better than I can. He doesn't ramble like I probably end up doing. Um he explains fire control, indirect fire, you traverse Everything that you would want to know about how to get four machine guns working together from a Vickers platoon in various you know, fire control missions and stuff like that, um, he, he explains brilliantly. So I've had this book in my possession from buying it from Rex back in 2002, I think. So that's like the third edition of the manuscript he put together. And it's we published a, a Great War uh, book two years ago now or no we started it two years ago it it went out last year on the 33rd battalion which was a history and memoir of the machine gun corps and we've been looking for how do we get so that was a book that was published in 1919 very expensive to get original copies now you're running between 200 and 400 pounds for an original because it's got beautiful watercolors and everything in it so we thought how do we get that story more accessible well, let's publish it. So that was out of copyright. Uh, and you know, we we started to put together this project to publish that. We then completed that and went, wow, that went down really well. What can we do as an association that is here with an object to educate and inform the public in the use of the Vickers machine gun? Let's find some other material. So I looked across my shelves and and, and the one that had always been at my mind is there's this very not poorly published, but a true privately published book um is a can loan officer it's you know not widely available um there is an ebook version that's been been around for a few years but how do we get basically how do we get this more accessible how do we get it you know like the justice it deserves there's a few platoon commander accounts um that exists there's infantry ones so um if you know if you Anybody studies the British Army infantry in, in Northwest Europe, they will know of Sydney Jarry's eighteen platoon, um, and it's been you know on the reading lists for uh, officer cadets through the Royal Military Academy at Sanders for a number of years now. Yeah, you know, back to when Sydney Jarry used to turn up and give the talks and stuff himself, um, and that's great, but it's it's like that's the infantry, and it is just one account. There's aren't many accounts that are like that. And there's certainly no machine gun officer accounts at that level. So it jumped out at me and I said, well, let me see what I can do to, to, to get in touch with Reg, who, you know, Rex's son, um, because I'd noticed again, the power of social media, I'd noticed Rex was on Facebook. He'd liked some of the posts that we put on our page. So I thought, Oh, okay. i I was in touch with Reg, uh, Reg shortly after Rex's death, and he, he passed away a few years ago now. Um, so let me see if I can r- get that contact going again and ask him. And amazingly, he came back very quickly. Um, it, only back in October, I was I was amazed. I was looking through emails. Um, did we really start to talk about it? You know, we sort of uh, proposed a few things in the month or so before, but back in October Reg said well I'll scan everything for you I'll rescan it I've still got all my dad's stuff I've still got the photos so because what we've you know in the in the original book are very poor quality because they were published back in early 2002 when photo space mattered um, it you know it the poor quality the maps were black and white copies so he said I'll rescan it all for you so what we've been able to do is not only pull together the book and make it more widely available, but really enhance the quality of it and put the you know the full colour maps in. We've some really high quality photographs which are completely unseen. You know, Rex was a guy that carried his own camera, um, took his own photos, and did what he wanted. An amazing platoon commander. Uh, you know, completely, completely individual you know, and if 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 you do ever you know, get anybody gets the chance to read Sidney jarry you'll think wow this guy was an individual and what you start to learn is that every platoon commander was an individual. They did things in their own way, and Rex was just exactly in that mould. So he'd still wear his Canadian battle dress, although he was in the second bit, you know, Middlesex, because he liked standing out. You know, the, the Canlones wore a Canada shoulder title underneath their, regiment, their regimental shoulder title, but he'd wear his Canadian battle dress because it was, you know, a better colour, as far as he was concerned. He he didn't wear his equipment. He rode a motorbike most of the time. We've got some great photos of, like, motorbike training in Wainwright, Alberta, in the book which weren't in the original because uh reg had managed to find some additional photos for us as well um just some super super additions to to the book that we're really pleased we've managed to pull together
1: Uh, yeah i I was amazed as i was looking through it like we're going to get to the appendix here in just a bit but i wanted to start on the complete it's interesting because let me step back here like the book is like a it has like those super interesting like personal stories and personal accounts but then it's kind of bookended by this appendix with all of this really fascinating information uh there were a couple of just very specific examples of of some of the sort of personal stories that I really liked uh pretty early on after he arrives in Normandy he talks about how like he took a motorbike but it, it had a different clutch I believe than the one he was used to and so he tells this story of like trying to shift while going down a, a sort of a country road and almost ending up in the ditch multiple times as he's trying to sort things out. Uh, I thought that was a, a very funny story.
0: Yeah, while well, while following his commanding officer, who's looking back going, "Yes, come exactly. on, just keep up." What are you doing? You know, you said you knew how to ride a motorbike, but if anybody's ever ridden sort of you know, European um, over to the you know, US motorbikes, the clutch and the gear shift are in a different position. So you know, he's, he's going to have to be working that through as he's going along on almost his first day behind his commanding officer. Um, anybody you know, could just sense the embarrassment of that in front of their new boss.
1: And then (laughs) uh, another story was he was discussing sort of dealing with the fact that they were near the front line and they were getting occasionally shelled by mortars. They, They were in kind of a forested area and it was raining. And he was talking about the problems of like, do I stay in my slit trench where it's wet and muddy, but safe, or do I go sit beside a tree where it's slightly drier, but dangerous? and i think the the quote he uses near the end of that is in fact i did both from time to time
0: and neither was restful yeah uh, th- th- it's brilliant i mean you you have to take these accounts with a pinch of salt because they're written so he started writing this in 1985 yeah they're written 40 years after the event but the richness of his memory and the personal reflections they sort of jump up we you know, we found some tiny stuff like he he gets the name of a canal wrong you know, some of the spellings are wrong, which we've added, added as footnotes. You know, we're not we're not trying to be smart and correct them. We're trying to just say, well, if we found one location, which is really frustrating because he calls it one thing, the British army maps of the period call it another, and the French have changed the name. So it's <laughs> like, so we, we will change the spelling. Uh, so it, it's really interesting to sort of get that. So we've just added some little footnotes to try and make it easier for a reader to follow as well, because what we like to do with our, um, well, I say, you know, this sounds like we've done dozens of them, but what we what we would like to do as we go forward, and we did it for the 33rd Battalion. We've, we've started to do it for this. Tom, one of our other directors, um, is a bit of a mapping guy. So we get on Google Maps and we start to plot all the locations. I say we, he does. Uh, he plots all the locations, and it makes it so that if, if you want to go and sit at the gun position that Rex had when they were firing on Truon um, on, the, like, the X of July, you can. This, you know, you just get on your phone find the, the maps that we've shared and um you can go and sit at that location look at what it's now look at the photos he took from these different positions back then so we've really done tried to do some then and now stuff so uh, let's say we did that for 33rd battalion uh that worked really nicely um we're doing it for for, for this book as well uh and yeah it, just because let's say the, the, some of the photos that rex took you see, you have seen before because they're photos he took that he that then the Middlesex regiment put in their history and then others have used it since, which is great because you go, I know the original source of that. And over time, when they've been photocopied or republished, they've lost their detail. So we've gone right back you know, with the help from Reg to the original photo, scanned it in at high res. And that's what we've now got in in, in the book, which is super.
1: Absolutely fantastic, Uh, but we got to talk about that appendix. So you are absolutely correct. Like that that appendix of describing how uh, how all of this was done was I found absolutely fascinating and very readable. Like when you get into that kind of information, I find that often it's not exactly great to sit down with a cup of tea and and whatever you're reading and and just you know have a pleasant time. But I found it, it it felt to me like somebody who had described that information in various forms about a hundred times before, and kind of refined maybe how he was describing things and how he
0: was uh, talking about how things were used. Yeah, I think it's that lived experience, isn't it? You know, he didn't have to check a manual to do that. He even puts that in there. He says, well, I might get some stuff wrong because this is from memory. Um, I've reflect, you know, I've ad- I've looked back at um, the manuals for a couple of terms, but this is from memory. And you're, wow, yeah, you know, just for a start, wow, um, because we know that appendix wasn't written until the mid '90s. So that was fifty years on. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it, he it's lived experience. He is such a brilliant communicator in that he put that together and was able to you know, say get those points across. Um, if you try. You know, and trust me, I've tried, if you try and interpret the British Army manuals, whichever style they're written in, because basically machine gunnery doesn't really change from about 1917 onwards. You know, We, we peak. Um, the Canadians, really, uh, Vimy Ridge, peak. They teach us everything we need to know, and then it very little changes. So if even if you read the 20s manuals, the 30s manuals, the 40s, the 50s, you'd think it'd get simpler, wouldn't you, as people you know, boil this stuff up and and rehash it, but it doesn't. You can't work it out. It's not until you sit and read, let's say somebody's lived experience, fifty years on, getting this stuff right, and you go, "Wow, that—that's just genius." You know, it—it's true understanding to be able to explain it to that level of simplicity, um, and, and 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 it sort of you—it know, makes me think about what my grandfather knew as well. That, that's one of the great things here. So my you know, the, the anecdote where people say, what really got you into uh, the Vickers machine gun? Not only did just my grandfather's use of it, but I'd been interested in military stuff for a few years before then. And we went to a military museum, Royal Marines Museum here in the UK for the 50th anniversary of D-Day. So we know it's June 1994. Um and my grandfather sat behind a vickers machine gun not having touched one for 50 years maybe 49 years but certainly a very long time and took it apart you know, no 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 hesitation he knew how to take that gun apart and he knew how to put it back together and it's this you know, that's the simple technical that my grandfather as a machine gunner firing the gun could do we know rex could do that because he attended a 1995 shoot here in the uk for the commemoration of the formation of the machine gun corps, not not a unit he was a part of, to be clear, but he was clearly on the grapevine of if there's an opportunity to fire a Vickers machine gun, he's going to get in on that. <laughs> That's the kind of guy that you get from the book once you read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he'd have leapt on that. And he also does it again in 2002 when there's a commemorative shoot for the disbandment of the machine gun corps. Something hopefully we'll get an opportunity to replicate this year uh, as the centenary of that disbandment. But it, it, but Rex clearly knew how to do that stuff as well but he also knew how to set four guns up, fire them use the resector protractor, use the director, use the dial sight you know, these are pieces of technical equipment that are complicated you know, he, the British army stops training on this stuff for some periods because they just go it's too complicated, we don't need to train people to do this and then normally what happens is we have a war where we need to do it so the Korean war was exactly that you know, we stopped training people how to do indirect fire in the late 1940s and the gloucestershire regiment you know, that people may know from the imjin hill history basically write to the small arms school and go can you teach us how to do map predictive fire we think it might be useful turns out it really was you know same thing happens again in the 70s and 80s in the falklands and the parachute regiment go can you just teach us this little bit? We know it's in the old manuals, but you know, with the general purpose machine gun or the M240 as, as the U S have it, um, you know, can you just teach us this bit? Uh, Cause we forget stuff. Well, tell you what, you know, when corporate memory forgets it, there's still somebody with individual memory that can remember how to do it perfectly. And that is a you know, Rex's example. His appendix is a brilliant example of that.
1: I've seen the diagrams for indirect fire. I, I, determined that I did not pay enough attention in geometry class uh, as soon as I started seeing those
0: yeah um, when I, when I do talks to, uh, to to you know school kids or anybody really actually um, you know you start talking trigonometry and let's say geometry um, atmospheric conditions and you real and you know, all of that stuff map reading you know, what are actually quite basic skills that we all learn. We all learned machine gunnery when we were about 14 years old. We just didn't realize it. So if, you know, if the kids are listening out there, learn it because machine gunnery might come in handy one day. Um, I certainly try and and just, you know, translate stuff into that, you know, that early, um, uh, those early sort of basic trigonometry principles uh, that that we learned and forgot so quickly because we thought they were useless.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me here today. So uh, sort of what is the release date looking like on a Canloan officer and how can people get their hands on it?
0: So uh, at the moment, we're just putting the final proof together, basically overlaying those high res images that I talked about onto onto the proof. We're expecting within the next six weeks that we'll be able to open pre-orders for that. Um, we will send around the world. You know that's one of the things that is making it accessible as possible. Uh, we'll have all that on the website, so and you know through our social media. It'll probably be around sort of twenty-seven to thirty pounds UK pounds, um, which we think for you know three hundred pages of absolutely rich history. Um, hopefully, people will think that's great value for money and order it as soon as they can because we'll we'll open it up for pre-orders. That will determine how many go on the print run. Yeah, these are these are limited run prints. This is not something we will start doing second editions of or reprints um, very lightly because we want to move so quickly onto the next project um, and start to share more and more history as as we go through the year.